Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to another week of Diffusion, your favourite science show in the whole solar system. I'm Tilly Boleyn and this week I'll be joined by the motliest crew of misfits, including Matt Clark. Hello. Jackie Hayes. Top of the morning to you. Lindsay Gray. Hello there. And Michelle Kovacevic. Hello. This week we're going to delight your mind hole with stories about monkey prostitution and pornography and peak oil. But first up, we're going to get some science news from the wonderful Jackie Hayes. Trendy, self-focused spirituality will not make you any happier. A study from the University of Queensland found that young adults with a belief in a higher power other than God were more at risk of poorer mental health and deviant social behaviour than those that rejected the beliefs. The study surveyed over 3,500 21-year-olds living in and around Brisbane. About 8% of young adults actually attended church once a week, which did in fact have beneficial effects on the behaviour of males, but not females. The researcher behind the study, Dr. Rosemary Aird, blames the movement away from traditional religion on the individualism of the me generation. She said the youth of today tend to mix and match, borrowing from many religions, with transient trends in television and popular culture becoming more and more influential. According to the agnostic Dr. Aird, this new spirituality wrongly focuses on self-fulfillment and improvement. 51-year-old Dr. Ed claims that her generation's emphasis on social responsibility and collective interests was a better way to mental health. Now to one of my favourite scientific fields, alcohol. Researchers in California have found that if you buy an expensive bottle of wine, you should always leave the price tag on. A study from the California Institute of Technology found that a higher price tag alone will enhance a consumer's enjoyment. They asked 21 volunteers to wear headgear measuring neural activity in the pleasure centre of the brain and then sample five bottles of wine. The tests were run 15 times so that the wines were presented in different orders. The volunteers were told very le little except for the price of their wine. The researchers passed off a $90 bottle of wine as a $10 bottle and they gave a $5 bottle a price tag of 45 They even presented the same bottle twice, once with the real price tag and then again with a fake one. As you may have guessed, the volunteers had more neural activity in the pleasure centre when drinking what they thought was an expensive, expensive bottle of wine. So the reward centre of your brain takes into account subjective beliefs about the quality of the experience. In a somewhat cyclical way, if you believe a certain experience should be better, you will, in fact, end up getting more pleasure out of it. Some recent genetic evidence has put an interesting spin on history. Christopher Columbus, who discovered the Americas in the 16th century, not only introduced Europeans to the New World, but he apparently also introduced them to syphilis. There has been debate raging for centuries over the origin of syphilis, a sexually transmitted infection caused by bacteria. An infection usually starts out as a sore, then progresses to a rash and fever and can eventually cause, cause blindness and dementia. 
Many scientists believe that syphilis was a disease our earliest ancestors could have carried. But a new genetic analysis of the syphilis bacteria family reveals its closest relative lives in South America, causing a non-venereal disease called yours, which causes lesions and bumps on the skin and later affects the joints. What is unclear is what form the disease was in when it made the transition from the Americas to Europe. Kristen Harper from Emory University in Atlanta and her colleagues think that a bacteria similar to the one causing yours could have travelled to Europe and quickly evolved into the syphilis-causing bacteria as it adapted to the cooler European environment. But there are still experts arguing all over the world. Other evidence in both the New World and the Old World comes from skeletal remains, because syphilis leaves telltale marks on bones, giving a worm-eaten appearance. And now we have Lindsay Gray, who's done some picking at the crust of the peak oil debate. She's waiting, unhooked, unscrewed, dissembled, taken completely apart, components lying inert and useless all over the garage. Her engine's been taken out as well, taken and opened and tinkered with. She needs new pistons, new gaskets and new valves. And I'm waiting too. All these parts are on order, and back in the garage, the tools, spanners, ratchets, wrenches, they're all at home eagerly poised for her rebuild. Hopefully, before I know it, my pretty little Honda 1989 CD250 you will be road and warrant worthy. And so super soon I'll be getting my little motorbike running and heading out onto the highway looking for adventure of course and always with an eye out for a cheap petrol station that might come my way. Lucky for me in my rather inflexible purse strings a Honda CD250U offers some pretty good fuel economy. I can look forward to running the mini beast for 100 whole kilometres for only 4 litres of petrol. Recently I was proudly boasting to a friend of mine that I was getting a motorbike and all about her awesome fuel economy. This friend, who's well acquainted with my steep green lean, cheekily asked whether my CD250U was retrofitted hot off the press with a hybrid engine. Ah, I thought no way. She's 100% old school internal combustion. My friend was ever so quick to inform me that I was awfully selfish and that my CD250U love affair was to be short-lived. Hello, Lindsay, pig oil. It doesn't matter how efficient your engine is. Every four litres litres per 100 k's your bike burns is four litres less of what is a rapidly diminishing non-renewable resource. Oh, okay. I will admit that I had considered the somewhat selfish nature of motorbike acquisition prior to these remarks. Every new owner of a combustion engine must have considered the accepted wisdom that oil is going to run out sometime very soon. Maybe I shouldn't bother getting the little motorbike fixed after all. But there is some debate as to when peak oil production is going to be reached. Some geologists and economists say it's already happened. Some say it's happening right now and some say it's going to happen in 5, 10, 15, 50 years. Some, however, say it's never, ever, ever going to happen at all. And they reckon that the whole peak oil bizzo is a get-rich-quick scam and that the world's petroleum companies are all in cahoots with all of the world's geologists. 
You can read about these non-peak oil believers, who are a handful of economists and geologists, in a bunch of dubious articles all over the internet. These folk entirely disagree with modern geology's theory that crude oil is a fossil fuel, a byproduct of the breakdown of organic matter. These "there's no such thing as peak oil" conspiracy theorists believe that all crude oil inside planet Earth has been formed through what's called abiotic or non-biogenic means. Now I'm sure everyone knows this already, but the conventional textbook wisdom for the formation of oil is as follows: hundreds of years ago, about 250 million years before our fabulously charismatic Tyrannosaurus Rex, who I can't help but mention, lumbered about the place, Earth experienced an age which geologists like to call the Carboniferous Period. Now our geologist friends are a clever bunch, and when looking through the deposits of rock from the Carboniferous period, they found lots and lots of hydrocarbon-based materials like coal and crude oil. Hence the name Carboniferous. The Carboniferous was a great time for life on Earth. The 150 million years or so that comprised the Carboniferous were wonderfully warm and regularly humid. Earth would have been a super cushy place for any enterprising life form to exist in. Fantastic organisms that we're lucky enough to still have gracing Earth today, including spiders, snails, dragonflies, reptiles, and conifers, all made their first recorded appearance in Carboniferous rocks. There were also heaps of warm, shallow seas, and these endless warm patches were home to loads and loads of algae and loads and loads of plankton. So we have shallow seas awash with carbon-based life forms going bananas, but we can't all live forever, of course. And there's a gnarly word that, word that biologists like to use to describe what happened next: eutrophication. Eutrophication occurs when nutrient-rich water leads to the abundant growth and proliferation of algae, both planktonic and otherwise. And as these algae progressively die, as they invariably will, the sheer abundance of the dead algae and plankton overwhelms the usual processes that break down and rot all the dead stuff. You see, bacteria love eating dead things, and in order to carry out this carry-on decomposition, bacteria need to consume lots of oxygen. But when the dead bodies are in such vast quantities, the sheer number of bacteria feasting away can dangerously deplete the water's dissolved oxygen. Now, a spot in the sea dangerously depleted of oxygen pretty much equals a spot in the sea without life, and these spots are something geologists and biologists get a thrill from calling dead zones. During the Carboniferous. Massive areas of shallow sea are thought to have become dead zones at one time or another. Now, all was not lost, and dead zone probably isn't the most accurate term for these low oxygen spots, though it is terribly catchy. As you clever clogs already know, not all life forms need oxygen to go about their business. Loads of bacteria are anaerobic, meaning they can live totally free of O2. A dead zone is a bonanza for an anaerobic bacterium, and billions of them would have got stuck into those carboniferous, carboniferous dead zones and made an utter meal of them. Fascinatingly, a byproduct of their digestion was this oily stuff called kerogen. Over the millennia, this oily stuff got covered over and pretty much squashed to buggery by thousands of tons of overlying rocks. And being squashed to this extent made the kerogen get really hot and converted it into the straight-chain hydrocarbons of which crude oil is comprised. Voila! But our conspiracy. But our conspiracy theorists think that this big, long, convoluted explanation is just a load of biology bollocks. They don't believe that oil comes from fossils at all. They think that this fossil fuel theory and the attendant peak oil crisis is all a hoax designed to coax us all into desperately buying really expensive oil. The conspiracy theorists believe that the hydrocarbons in crude oil have been generated abiotically under the crust in the Earth's mantle.
They think that there's heaps more of the stuff down there and that more and more oil could be being produced as we speak. The non-biogenic theory that they've picked up on is not a new one. It was thought up by Russian scientists from the Institute of the Physics of the Earth at the Russian Academy of Sciences during the intellectual isolation of Russia during the Cold War. The theory posits that the inorganic carbon in the Earth's mantle, of which there's stacks in the form of carbon dioxide, carbonates and methane, and which has been inside the Earth since it formed 4.5 billion years ago, is able to spontaneously convert into oil due to the dynamic high pressure and temperature conditions in the mantle. And sometimes it just erupts up into the crust, the crust rocks where we find it. And despite the unfortunate tarnish provided by the conspirators, this is a legitimate theory. And there are chemists and physicists working right now in Russia attempting to replicate the high-pressure, hot, hot conditions in the mantle that are believed to convert methane and carbonate spontaneously into crude oil. So have we been totally duped? Should I rush home right now to my pile of nuts and bolts with renewed vigour and start screwing together my carbon-fueled machine, confident in Russian boffin know-how? Well, I'm afraid without the years of hard-won knowledge required to understand all that crazy carbon chemistry, I'm not really at liberty to comment. And anywho, I can already hear my cheeky friend pointing out that whether crude oil is formed from ancient fossils or not, my cute little motor is going to be contributing to global warming anywho, and she's not going to be much use to me when her rubber tyres melt all over the bitumen. Thank you, Lindsay, for that slick coverage of competing crude oil formation theories. And now to give your brain holes a little bit of a rest from competing scientific theories. And before we get into pornography, here's a track from Tung's new album, Bullets. Sentimental inside Your words are gelignite Or just another sentimental aside We're catching bullets in our teeth And though it's easy if you know how it's done Split the secret up six ways Before they gave it to us Just before dawn And now we don't remember Our blood and guts are out We spread our bones across the table at night We cut our fingers off Ourselves those little extra insides. We're catching bullets in our teeth, and though they try hard not to say how it's done, they always do. They spill the secret out six ways and beg for our forgiveness just before dawn. 
Tongue from their new album, Good Arrows. Now, according to current evolutionary theory, humans evolved from monkeys, but it seems we've inherited a few traits that from our ancestors that, up until recently, have gone undiscovered. A team of researchers in Singapore have discovered that a form of prostitution exists in the culture of some monkeys, as well as some other perverted little behaviours that Matt Clark has been looking into. Yes, it seems some of the good people at Nanyang Technical University in Singapore have embarked on a rather strange research subject. They wanted to find out whether monkeys, like some humans, are willing to pay for sex and pornography. Now, you can just imagine how this has come about, can't you? I can picture two guys sitting in a steamy Singapore bar somewhere, stinking drunk, and one of them's gone to the other, hey, do you reckon, like, monkeys would like to watch pornography if they had some, and... Oh, yeah, that would be so funny. Hey, and what if there was, like, monkey prostitutes and stuff? Oh, man, wouldn't that be cool? Well, it turns out that the person who hands out the research grants at Nanyang Tech was also at the same bar because someone has gone ahead and found out. And what's more, it turns out that monkeys are actually willing to pay for sex and pornography. Now, before we turn off and start ringing up the station, we're not talking about Monkeys walking the shady back streets of the jungle in trench coats with shifty looks on their faces. And there is a serious side to the research. These guys have actually uncovered the first evidence of a social market influencing sexual behaviour in non-humans. Now, 
A social market is basically, or a large part of a social market, is basically how hot you are in relation to the other people around you. Now, the hotter you are, the more likely you are to find someone to mate with. And if you're lacking in the hotness department, well then, you've got to do a little bit more work to find someone who'll even look at you twice. Or, failing that, you can pay for someone to mate with you. Now, in the case of the long-tail macaque monkeys, there is a very defined social network. Everyone knows where they stand in the pecking order, and the hot monkeys definitely know they've got it going on. And the poor monkeys at the bottom know they've got their work cut out for them. Now, they know if they want any hot monkey action, they've got to pay for it. And the Nanyang research team have discovered just how they do it. They use grooming as a currency. Now, basically, the lower status monkeys will sidle up to a hot-looking female, and because you can't buy her a drink or show her your cool sports car, you'll start to groom her. You'll untangle her fur, get rid of the ticks, and remove any of the burrs or whatever's in there. Doesn't work for me at the bars, but... For the monkeys, this works pretty well because it actually sexually excites the female and depending on how good a job he does and how long he does it for, it will more often than not lead to mating. Now, the research team believe this behaviour has evolved into foreplay in humans. This is further reinforced by the fact that it only lasts about 60 seconds. Now, actually, these poor bottom-of-the-ladder guys have to go up to anywhere to 30 minutes before the female will be happy. Now, whereas the hotter male monkeys can strut around like rock stars at the backstage party of some gig, point to one of their groupies hanging around and say, how you doing? While, while they do perform some grooming, it's usually very little and it doesn't last very long. Now, the Singapore team also found that the hot female monkeys, it's not a phrase you hear every day, is it? The hot female monkeys can demand a lot more attention than the lower caste girls. Now, these hotties can prance around like a spoilt Paris Hilton and demand whatever they want, knowing there'll be some poor loser who will do it for them. While the lower status females have to put up with a lot less attention or take home one of the loser monkeys at the end of the night before lights get turned on. Now, what they've also found in Duke University is that monkeys are willing to pay for pornography. Now, yes, it does sound strange, but... They've conducted studies also in macaque monkeys where they had a group of 12 of them. There were six males, six females. Once again, they had a, a very defined social network and they took pictures of them. They stuck the males down in a room and basically what they did, they had two pictures each. Now, if the, there might be a picture of like um, one of the males, one of the loser guys or whoever, and a picture of a girl's monkey butt. Now... What would happen if they looked at the um, the loser male picture? They would get like heaps of juice. They'll get all this juice, and that was their payment for looking at the juice for looking at the at that picture. If they looked at the female's butt picture, they would get a lot less juice. And so, in a way, they're actually paying for it. Yeah, because they're not because they're foregoing getting the extra juice. That's right. Wow, Matt, this, this is an amazing discovery. It Can is. I just throw in one question? Please. Uh, how, how do you tell how, whether a monkey's hot or not? And it, it, what if some monkeys found some other monkeys hot, but they weren't stereotypically <laughs> attractive? Well, usually it's, um, it's 
or in males, it's all about how how powerful you are, how um oh, right, how okay. big you are, as is in a lot of the um a lot of the animal world. It's how how big and powerful you are. So how how well you can protect the female and her children. Um, with the females, I'm not sure. It's it's probably more to do with um how well you can reproduce. I suppose if you're if you're pretty successful at... Um, Lindsay, I know you've got a top that says, I reproduce heaps good. Yeah, mm. yes. so, I'm incredibly fertile today, <laughs> particularly. So watch out, everyone. So you, you'd be getting a lot parasites of... parasites loaded mm. up all over you. Yeah, you're ready to go. Feel free to come over no and have a bit on of you, a comb. Huh? <laughs> I've been wondering if that's why women like going to the hairdressers so much. Yeah, maybe. Spending but hours being groomed. But how often do you sleep with your hairdresser? Well, that's the way we, we, we cover our bases oh, there by having right. you know a lot of female and or... Hairdressers, that <laughs> so that you're not so there's going. Not like lots of <laughs> Did they look into whether or not the female monkeys would pay for porn, or was it just male monkeys? No, they only studied it on um, the the Duke University study was only on the they only studied the male monkeys. They didn't worry about um, looking at the female monkeys. But but another interesting thing that what they a noticed. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> another interesting thing they noticed was that the male monkeys would also pay a lot to see some of the higher status males, Ooh. just pictures of them. Just almost as if like celebrity worship or something like that. That's the theory anyway. That does explain the Brad Pitt poster on your bedroom wall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had to forego a lot of juice for that picture, let me tell you. <laughs> That's about all we've got time for on this episode of Diffusion. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. So it's bye from us. Me, Tilly Berlin, Matt Clark. See you later. Jackie Hayes. Bye for now. Michelle Kovacevic. Bye-bye. And Lindsay Gray. Tootaloo. If you've got any questions, suggestions, fan mail, you can send it to diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also check out our website, diffusionradio.com. Download all the podcasts you've missed. Have a good week. <laughs>